Hey, I'm Greg Johnson. I'm the lead pastor here at Restoration Church Wood Forest. We want to welcome you to our podcast today. Our mission at Restoration is to empower people to become world changers by releasing them into their full potential in the kingdom of God. So that happens in a lot of ways, but on Sunday mornings, we gather together, we worship passionately, and then we open the word of God and we explore the application and the truth of how God's word can be applied to our lives. And so today, I hope that you enjoy this message from God's word. Hey, we don't want this in any way to be a replacement for church. Let it be a supplement for you. But if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us any week at 8 o'clock, 945, and 1130. We hope you enjoy the message. Welcome to Restoration. Um, so we're in the book of Psalms. If you want to turn to Psalm 139 this morning, it's toward the end of the book of Psalms. And... Um, it's a really, a really cool passage that I'm excited to walk through this morning. Uh, but as I was preparing this week, it took me back to February 2013. So in February 2013, coming out of a season uh, of brokenness and uh, was, was healing in my life, um, Yvonne and I, our, our marriage was healing. And uh, at the end of 2010, in December, I was invited to no longer be on staff at Wood's Edge. Um, Hashtag fired and uh, and so man lost my job. Our marriage was in uh, was in disarray. Um, probably shouldn't have made it, and yet here we were in February 2013. Um, I've told you before, I, I can't really reconcile everything that happened before um, my broken moment and the transformation. So I'm not going to say I wasn't a Christian, but I know that I met Jesus in a transformative way, December 4th, 2010, and I've never been the same. And so I was on this journey, and uh, over a period of a few days in February of 2013, uh, through a pastor, through a friend, through some crazy visions, I felt called to plant a church and to plant a church in New York City. And so uh, both parts of that vision were crazy. Uh, first of all, because I was a career musician and had no real translatable skill to pastor a church. I had no experience. I didn't have the education that would be needed to pastor a church, but I was all in and I said yes. And I asked God, what is the first thing that I need to do and pursue? And he said, sell your house. And so it, it wasn't go to a church planning conference or maybe go back to school. It was sell your house. And so in an act of obedience, we found a realtor who walked through our house, looked at it, gave us an idea of what we could expect. And before it ever went on the market, it sold. So by July of 2013, we were homeless um, we had sold our house, we had used uh, what we had made on the house to pay off all of our debt, and we were sitting and waiting for that next ah, moment. And so uh, throughout the fall, struggled to find traction with this idea of New York City. So fast forward to June of 2014, um, I transitioned back onto staff at Wood's Edge. The church that fired me, hired me to plant what we know of today as restoration. And so the name on the sign is, it's, it's my story, it's our story. Uh, and so we started restoration. And uh, over the first few years, I was still kind of looking over my shoulder at, well, when does New York happen? Because it was very, very clear. And I kind of felt like, well, you know, Wood Forest is kind of the New York City of Montgomery County. Um, <laughs> You know they say that, right? They. Um, and so I'm justifying in my mind, okay, this is, uh, I, I felt like this was a necessary step that God had told me, hey, you need to do this. And so we're walking in obedience to it, but there's always that idea of, man, what was the deal with New York? January 1st, 2018, in my journal, I'm writing and I'm asking God, hey, what, what was the New York City thing all about? And here's what he told me. He said, Greg, I wanted you to pastor a church, but I knew you would never pursue that. So I put New York City in front of you to propel you into the actual adventure I had for you. Wow. So my first thought was, that makes 
complete sense because he was right. I would have never pastored a church. I would have never, if he just said, hey, plant a church, I would have said, yeah, cool, cool story, but no thank you. But then my second thought was, well, that's pretty sneaky. <laughs> if you walk in my office today, I have New York City all over my office in a weird obsessive kind of way. Like it's everywhere. And so since 1994, I've had this obsession with New York. Just love it. Love to be there. We've been there a dozen times. I love to wander the city. Uh, I'll go there by myself and just wander the streets. Just, it, it's, it's a captivating city to me. And God used that. He was preparing me all the way back to 1994 to, to that moment when he was ultimately gonna call me and move me into what he wanted me to be and what he wanted me to do. And he used New York City to get me there. Now, why am I telling you that story? Because God knows what makes me tick. God knows the motivations of my heart. God knows all of the nuance. He knows the things that I think about. He knows my deep insecurities around education. So he knew what my hangup was. And so what he did was he threw something out there that made me go, I'll chase that. And as I began to pursue that, he began to open my heart to what he actually wanted for me. And that's what God does. He knows you. He knows everything about you and he is always working in such a way to get you moving in the direction that he wants you to go. And that is what this passage is all about today. Psalm 139, it's one of the more intimate psalms. Uh, it's, as, it's as if we are reading David's journal that he is journaling his thoughts on God and his relationship with God. So we're gonna see in the passage today this big God, but we're also gonna see this big God that has made himself known to David. It's this beautiful picture. And, and he was very theological. He didn't really know it, but theologians would say that he's laying out all of the omnis of God, that he is omniscient, meaning he's all-knowing, that he's omnipresent, meaning he's everywhere, that he's omnipotent, he's all-powerful. But the psalm is not just about God's qualities, it's about the intimate relationship David has with his God. A.W. Tozier put it really well in his book, Desiring God, when he said, what comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And here's what he's saying in a nutshell. How big is your God? We see in the passage today a big God, a massive God by David's estimations. But the question for you today is, how big is your God? So keep that in mind as we walk through this passage, and we're going to see these four movements. We're going to see an all-knowing God, an all-present God, an all-powerful God, and then we're going to see David's response to all of this. So he starts in verse 1, which is a great place to start. Um, You've searched me, Lord, and you know me. So who does he call God? Lord. Man, we got to start here. So let's camp here for just a second. Uh, the relationship between God and David is very clear. Lord. What does Lord mean? What does it mean for God to be Lord? This is a master-servant relationship. He's very clear. There's no misunderstanding who God is and who David is. He calls him Lord. Proper position. So it's pretty popular in, in, in spirituality today for us to call Jesus our homeboy, you know, that, that Jesus is my buddy, he's my pal. Know this, you and God are only partnering in your life because he's allowing you to. That, that this is not an equal partnership. It is God, he is the Lord. He is a big God. It's his world and you're just living in it. And so we get the opportunity to see that, that David is acknowledging God as Lord. For some of you this morning, 
God's a very important part of your life. If we drew a pie graph of your life, there's, there's a good little sliver out of there that you would say, hey, here's my, here's my spiritual life. And know this, God has zero interest in being a part of your life. He wants it all. We talk in the church about trusting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So we get the Savior part, right? And so if you were here in the book of Hebrews, ad nauseum, we talked about Jesus and his sufficient sacrifice for sin through his blood. That his blood was the perfect sacrifice for all sin for all time. That's not really that hard of a concept to get in the evangelical church today, right? That, that you are saved from your sin through the power of the cross. Everybody with me on that? And I think intellectually, we hear the word Lord and we're like, yeah, that word is tossed around in the church a lot. But when we talk about saying, Jesus, you're not just my savior, but you're my Lord. What we're saying is you are the leader of my life. That I gave up my rights to lead my own life when I said yes to you. How does that sit with you today? When you think about the last 24 hours of your life or maybe the last week of your life and you think about the choices that you made and the life that you lived and the things you pursued, could you say as a follower of Jesus, Jesus, you have been Lord of my life this week. Everything's flowed through you. I've not stepped to the left or the right without you. And again, I'm not talking about perfection, but I am talking about pursuit. Am I pursuing a relationship with God based on his lordship, his leadership? He wants full control of your life. He wants it all. So he says, Lord, he says, you have searched me and known me. So I love that he says, you've searched me. That's a really vulnerable place to be, right? It's never personally happened to me that I want to talk about, but uh, uh, if you've ever been, you know, asked to get out of your car and patted down, that's an uncomfortable place. Thank you for admitting that, Sheila. Um, so, uh, yeah, at the end of the day, there's vulnerability in being searched, right? Physically. But what about emotionally and spiritually? Is that a vulnerable place to be when you're laid bare? when you're exposed. And, and, and he's saying, hey, listen, God, you have exposed me. You have searched me and you know me. It's such an intimate feeling here. The all-knowing God has full access to my life. And here's what I love. He is interested and engaged enough to get into the details. So this is a big God that's interested in the details of your life. How's that hit you? God's interested in you. He's interested not just in the, the, the overall stereotypical view of you. No, four billion people on the planet and he knows everything about you. And he says, you've searched me and you know me. There's nothing hidden from you. It reminds me of Peter. Remember when he's on the beach in John 21 and uh, Jesus has been resurrected and now Jesus comes on the beach and reveals himself to the disciples and then he and Peter have this real awkward interaction because Peter had denied him three times. And so now he's restoring Peter and then in just a few days, Peter's gonna be filled with the Holy Spirit and found the church. But uh, here Jesus is talking to him and, and, and he says to him, hey, uh, Peter, do you love me? And he's like, well, yeah, yeah, I love you, Jesus. He's like, feed my sheep. Second time, Peter, do you love me? Uh-huh, yeah, I, I, do, I do, I love you. Tim my lands. Then in verse 17, it says, the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter, you can just feel his head drop. Like, he says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And I feel like what Peter's saying here is, Jesus, you know me. I love you the best way I know how. I, I, I want to love you. I want to love you. You know me. And this is that picture, this beautiful picture of vulnerability that David is expressing here. He's like, hey, God, you've searched the depths of my heart and you know me. 
so this flies in the face of an idea that religion sells, that God is 30,000 foot, right? He's up there somewhere above the clouds in a place we call heaven. And, you know, and he sent his son. And when you say yes to Jesus, one day you'll go to heaven when you die. But now you're just here to slog around on earth and just try to make it through and hopefully not step out and get struck by, you know, the heavenly lightning bolt from the 30,000 foot God that is not interested in the details of your life. How's that sit with you? Well, it shouldn't sit well because it's not true. The Bible is full of God's pursuit of relationship with man. He's interested. He's interested in being intimately engaged with the details of your life. He's involved. How involved? Well, look at what David says. He says, you know, when I sit, when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out, my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. That's pretty intimate. When I sit, when I rise, you know my thoughts before I think them, before I'm gonna speak, you're finishing my sentences. You know everything about me. You're in all the details. This is not a picture of an uninvolved God. I mean, some might say it's the picture of a stalker, right? That oh, He's not just in, he's all in. He knows every move. He's all knowing. It makes me think of the, the most... Uh, important person in my life, the most important human in my life, um, Yvonne. So we've known each other for over 40 years. So we went to high school together. She friends on me for a long time. I'm not bitter about it. But, uh, I, but uh, we were friends for a long time until we weren't. And then eventually we got married. We'll celebrate 33 years in September, which is awesome. Yeah, thank you for clapping for that, Sheila. Um, and so, uh, but, but here's what I know about Yvonne, she knows me better than anybody else. She knows my tendencies. She knows what I like, what I don't like. She knows that there are exactly six t-shirts that I wear and I have over 200. Um, she knows the things that I like to eat and when she goes to the store, she buys them. Like she didn't ask me to make a list, she knows. She, she knows everything about me. She knows what I want to watch. She knows she can tell when I'm uh, uncomfortable, when I'm, when I'm feeling anxious. So she anticipates all of my needs. She's got me on GPS lockdown. She knows where I am at all times. There are times that she'll text me and go, hey, Torchy's again, huh? And I'm like, don't be creepy, right? Um, <laughs> It's the world we live in today, right? So I think about that. I, I think about how well she knows me, how, how tuned in she is to who I am. And it is a fraction of how God feels about me. Like it's not even really close. As much as I, I know that she knows me and as much as I feel like I know her, it is nothing compared to the way that God knows me. But it's not just that he knows me. Look at verse five. It says, you hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. So he not only knows you, but he's creating a way for you. He hems you in behind, before. He's always attentive to where you're going. This is a picture of both protection. He's always protecting you. Some, some of you think, man, God, where were you in this moment? And he's like, you have no idea what I protected you from. And it says, you hem me in behind and before. He's shaping your path. Because he knows your thoughts and your tendencies. And he has this tailor-made plan that fits you like a T, to a T. Just like God knew that we needed to be here. 
He knew we needed to be here. We are thriving and flourishing today because God knew, I mean, if you look at New York City today, it ain't good. I mean, I even think during the COVID season, I would have just crashed and burned. And I'm just way too opinionated. And so I, I just know that it would not have worked. And I'm so grateful that God knew me better than I knew myself. He knew me better than my own plan, my own agenda. He knew that I was made for this. We talk a lot at Restoration about living into your Ephesians 2.10 calling. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. That is a picture of him creating our path and then hemming us in and making sure that we're moving in that direction. And he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Man, it is too lofty for me to really understand how well God knows me. And here's how I know, because I tend to run out ahead of him a lot. I tend to uh, think things that are outside of, of, of his standard. I, I tend to move at my own pace. It is too lofty for me to attain the understanding of how big God is. And you know what? I thank God for that. Because if I could fully understand God, then I would be God, and that would be a really small God. And that is not a short joke. It's just a fact. <laughs> Knowing that he's in control, he's made a way, is both exciting and comforting. I don't have to have it all figured out. I just get to be obedient. This master-servant relationship. He says it, I do it. And that's either really great or really unnerving, depending on your vantage point. If you're a control freak, it's really unnerving because uh, I just want to burst your bubble. If you're a controller in the room, control is an illusion. You have no control. Amen. And I think for a lot of us, we're like, oh, <clears throat> that makes you sit up straight. Here's the truth of the matter. You've never been in control. You were never supposed to be in control because when you're in control, things go south. Your control has a shelf life. Thank God that he's so much bigger, so much better. Okay, so now he shifts from an all-knowing God to an all-present God. Verse seven, he says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. He asks the question, where can I go that you aren't? And what's the answer? Nowhere. There's nowhere I can go that you aren't. God is everywhere. So I've told you this before, let me remind you, uh, if you've said this before, I forgive you. Just don't say it again. Um, uh, here, here is the fallacy. We have a worship experience like we had this morning and you'll leave and you'll be phoning a friend and you'll be talking and you'll be like, God really showed up this morning. No, he didn't. He was already here. You're the one that showed up. So we have to be reminded, God is everywhere all the time. And he's in this house of worship. He's also at Hope Church and Connect Church and the church at Wood Forest. He's at the Crossing Church and Wood's Edge and Faith and the Woolwich United Methodist Church. He's literally everywhere. And, and the goal is not for God to show up. It's for us, for our eyes and ears to be open to recognize his presence. Because he's everywhere. He's not just all-knowing. He is omnipresent, all-present, all the time. That can be intimidating, right? He says, hey, if I go up to the heavens, you're there. Duh, that's obvious. But he says, if I go down to the depths, in other versions, if I go down to Sheol, which we would know is kind of the, 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 the place of the dead, you're there. So if I rise with the wings of the dawn, he's saying, listen, all the way to the east where the sun rises, that's where you are. Or I look the way, the banks of the sea, that's to the west. Saying there's nowhere I can go that you aren't. You're 
everywhere. So he moves from saying, hey, listen, you hem me in, you got a plan for me. He's saying there is no escaping you. No escaping you. But here's the most important thing. He is all present because he loves. He's all present because he wants to be. Psalm 103, verse 11 and 12, it says, as far as, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he's removed our transgressions from us. The apostle Paul in Romans chapter eight, he says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from what? The love of God that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is all present because he wants to be. He is all present. He is all knowing and fully engaged from a place of love. It's because of his love. But get this. He's there in your job loss. He's there in your financial pressure. He's there on the operating table. He's there when your child is sick. He's there when you lose a loved one. He's there in your struggling marriage. He's there on the other side of your divorce. He's there in your addiction, in your shame, in your guilt. He's there in your secret. Amen. He's always present and he's always present. Why? Because he loves you. Yes. He's present because of his love for you. And some of you are like, hey, you just named one of the things that I'm struggling with. And you're asking the question, where was God when that's happening? He says, I'm right here. Maybe the only thing that you'll hear today from the Lord is you're asking the question, where are you in the middle of my pain? And if you'll just listen very closely, you'll hear him whisper, I'm right here. I'm right here. He's all up in the middle of your life. Fully engaged. As a follower of Jesus, you can't check your spirituality at the door and leave his presence. Some of you have lived under the lie that there's compromise going on in your life and you talk yourself into this place where you walk out of God's presence and into sin. And know this, every time you walk into a place of sin, you're taking him with you. We say at the end of every service, wherever we go, what? The kingdom goes with us. We talked about last week that we are carriers of the DNA of Jesus. We are carriers of kingdom DNA. And every room we walk into, we're taking Jesus with us. And so if you think that you can opt out of the presence of God so that you can indulge in compromising your life, that's not how it works. It's like I've got something better for you. And it's kind of hard for me because in my most broken place, God was present. He was right there. And how you should see that today is an invitation. That God never leaves you. He never forsakes you. Amen. It's us that walks away, not him. And if you're one of those in your marriage that you get in a fight and you say something and stomp out of the room, just know he's stomping right into the next room with you. Amen. You can't flee from his presence. Look at what he says, verse 11. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. Darkness is as light to you. When God is present, there is no darkness. So we know David's story, right? He was well-versed in hiding. He was an expert hider. Do you remember when all the kings went off to war and he saw Bathsheba bathing on the roof and said, I have to have her. And so he slept with her. And then she came back to him and said, hey, oops, I'm pregnant. And so what did he do? 
He didn't confess. He didn't say, I'm going to do the right thing. No, he called Uriah, her husband, home from war, tried to get him to sleep with his wife, and he was so honorable that he refused to do it. He said, I'm not going to indulge in that while I've got men out on the battlefield. And so you would think at that point, David's like, okay, I got to come clean. No, he sent him out onto the front lines to be killed. He made sure that he was killed. So David was an adulterer and a murderer. He was very well versed at hiding. And it took the prophet Nathan coming and exposing his sin for him to repent. Read Psalm 51, this beautiful psalm of repentance. So when he writes I can't flee from your presence. I can't get away from your presence. What, what he's saying is, God, you pursued me even in my brokenness. You pursued me in the darkness of my sin. And know this, he didn't remove him from the throne. When he repented, he forgave him. And that's why David is known as a man after God's own heart. That should be hope for every person in the room. That God doesn't look at you and because of something you've done, say your life is over, you're done. Uh, done. Sometimes natural consequences take our lives, but God is a God of second chances. And here's what we know. In David's darkest moment, God was ever present and inviting him into a new life. God stepped into David's darkness and shined light. So you may find yourself in the shadows. You may think that you're hiding, but know this, God shines light on all the dark places, period. That's what he does. Why? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. And, and, and so in David's context, we can see the product of his life. But for us now, thousands of years later, here's what we can look at. God became light when he descended from heaven in the person of Jesus Christ yes. to shine light in a dark world. Amen. John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. By him all things were made and nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and that life was what? The light of all mankind. And then he says this, light, the light shined in the darkness and the darkness could not overcome it. There's nothing in your life that the light of Jesus cannot overcome. That's what he does. He shines light in dark places. He is all present. He's all in. On helping you become who has made you to be. So he's all knowing. He's all present. Now we'll see him shift verse 13. He is all powerful. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. This is a picture of an intimate yet all-powerful God. This whole idea of divine design, the intricacies of the human body. It says, while I was in my mother's womb, you were forming me. Do you realize how intricate the human body is? I mean, it's crazy. So a guy named Carl Sagan, he's dead now. He was a, an astronomer. He's a brilliant man, also was agnostic, so he wasn't that smart. But uh, I want to read you, I want to read you what he said about the human body. Consider the miracle of the human body. Every second, more than 100,000 chemical reactions take place in your brain. It has 10 billion nerve cells to record what you see and hear. The information comes to your brain through the miracle of the eye, which has 100 million receptor cells in each eye. Your retina also has four other layers of the nerve cells. Altogether, the system makes the equivalent of 10 billion calculations a second before an image even gets to the optic nerve. Once it reaches your brain, the cerebral cortex has more than a dozen separate vision centers in which to process it. 
Your tear ducts supply a bacteria-fighting fluid to protect your eyes from infection. The tears that fight irritants differ from the tears of sadness, which, can say, which contain 24% more proteins. That's not to mention the miracle of the ear and how it translates to sound waves into meaningful speech and sounds, or of touch, taste, and smell. Part of your brain regulates voluntary matters such as muscle coordination and thought processes. Other parts of the brain control involuntary processes such as digestion, glandular secretions at the rate, uh, the rate at which your heart beats, etc. How did it accidentally happen that your body could speed up your heart rate to the proper speed to meet increased oxygen demand when you exercise and slow it down when that need is met? One square inch of your skin has about 625 sweat glands, 19 feet of blood vessels, 19,000 sensory cells. Working in coordination with your brain, it maintains your body at a steady 98.6 degrees under all weather conditions. Your stomach has 35 million glands, which secrete the right amounts of juice to allow your body to digest food and convert it into stored energy for your muscles. To avoid digesting yourself, your stomach produces a new lining every three days. Thank God. Uh, your body is an efficient machine. To ride a bicycle for a, uh, an hour at 10 miles per hour requires only 350 calories, the energy equivalent of only three tablespoons of gasoline. Don't know how you figured that one out. Um, you have more than 200 bones for each shape for its function connected intricately to one another through lubricated joints that cannot be perfectly duplicated by modern science. More than 500 muscles connect to these bones. Some obey willful commands. Others perform their duty in response to unconscious commands from the brain. They all work together to keep us alive. The heart muscle itself beats over 103,000 times each day, pumping blood pumping your blood cells a distance of 168 million miles. So I could keep going. Here's the point. Carl's agnostic, but even he gets it. There is intelligent design. You were made not by mistake, not by accident. An all-powerful God is interested in the details of your life. Augustine which said, men go abroad to wonder at the heights of mountains and the huge waves of the sea, at the long courses of the rivers, at the vast compass of the ocean, at circular motions of the stars. And they pass by themselves without wondering. Divine design. You were not created by accident. You were created an all-powerful God who put the intricacies of the human body together in such a way that you can live and breathe without thinking. It's crazy. So you can struggle with how God works, but no fair-minded person can really say that he doesn't exist. All we have to do at, is look at how we're made, fearfully and wonderfully made formed in the innermost parts. Verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. So not only are we created by an all-powerful God, but our ways are created and established by him. He's already said this about being hemmed in before and behind, but now he's just doubling down on it. He's like, listen, all of my days were written in the book before they even happened. You knew what was gonna happen with my life. You formed me for this moment in time. That's who he is. In Acts chapter 17, Paul was in Athens and he was talking to the Carl Sagans of the day, the Stoic philosophers. And he's walking through the city and they've got all these statues for all these gods. And then they have this one uh, empty statue platform that says to an unknown God. And Paul, who was brilliant, sees that and he uses that as a platform of a conversation that he has with these Stoic philosophers. 
And he says, hey, I noticed he had this, uh, this, this platform that says to an unknown God. Well, let me introduce you to him. And he begins to tell them about who God is. And in verse 24, he says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he gives him, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Paul got it. All powerful God, intimately acquainted. Divine design, intimately acquainted. Big God, fully engaged in the details. And look at this. Verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And when I'm awake, I'm still with you. Think about the thoughts that God has about you. About you. He says, so vast is the number, I can't even count them. Now, Man, we got, we got a lot of spiritual narcissism going on in the church today. You know, when we say things like, if you were the only person in the world, Jesus still would have died for you. That's dumb. When have you ever been or will you only be the only person in the world? That just doesn't even make sense. And yet, God has you on his mind all the time. He's a little bit obsessed with you. You are his created being, four billion people on the planet and his thoughts on you are countless. Man, that should make you lean forward that the God of the universe is interested in your life. The all-powerful God has the capacity for thoughts on you that just, they're countless. He's interested. He's all in on your life. He's an expert on you. So look at David's response to all of this. Feels a little outlier at first. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those that hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. So some commentators have said they feel like this was placed in this psalm later, that it wasn't actually a part of it. But as I was reading through it, here was kind of where my mind went. He's saying, listen, an enemy of God is an enemy of mine. I'm so in on you, God. I'm so in on you as the all-knowing God, as the all-present God, as the all-powerful God, that anybody that doesn't see that, I got no time for them. I'm all in. And I think what he's saying is, I will honor God by not letting the enemy into my camp. This speaks directly to who we allow in our lives, what we allow in our lives, that we're, willing to call sin, sin, and not give ourselves a break. And then he goes on to use this uh, word hatred. And here's what I feel like he's saying there. He's saying, no compromise. No compromise. No, I wanna hate the things you hate. I wanna love the things you love, but I wanna hate the things you hate. And here's the problem and the reason that the American church is, is, is really largely irrelevant in the U.S. today, stereotypically, is because we don't really hate the things God hates. We get in here, we raise our hands and we sing at the top of our lungs, but the truth of the matter is the same things are on our television set that are on everybody else's television set. The same compromise in their lives we're living in our lives. So we're not living a, a life where we're truly saying, God, I wanna hate the things you hate. It's God, I'm kinda okay with the things you hate. I love you, 
But I kind of like this stuff. That's a hard admission, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't sit well with me. So where would you cultivate beginning to hate sin and love Jesus more? It's in the secret place every day. Can I say it every week for the rest of our time together? Yes, I can and I will. Here's the truth of the matter. This is where you are transformed in the secret place with Jesus. I always walk to this place when we talk about the secret place. I don't know why. But, but, but this is where we are becoming. This is the laboratory of God that we show up and we sit and all we do is say, hey, God, I wanna love the things you love. And remember last week in Psalm 37, four, we said it's probably one of the more misquoted verses in all the Bible because we love and he will give you the desires of your heart. When the truth of the matter is, delighting ourselves in the Lord as we come and we sit and we just say, I'm just going to sit right here with you and I'm going to allow you full access to my life. And over time, you are going to change my affections. You are going to change the trajectory of my life. I will begin to love the things you love and hate the things you hate. And it's a process that takes place over time that we be, we choose to be with Jesus so that we can become like Jesus so that we can do the things that Jesus did. But it's God's nature that frames this relationship, right? Because he's all knowing, because he's all present, because he's all powerful, I can move into where he is. He has proven that he can be trusted. And here's how we know this. In David's life, verse 23, he says, search me, God, and know my heart. So he says at the beginning of this psalm, he says, you have searched me and you know my heart. And now he comes back and he says, because you have searched me, because you have known my heart, I'm giving you access to search me again. It's a matter of trust, right? I've trusted you before you've come through and now I'm saying, okay, here I am again. Search me, know my heart, try me, know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Maybe your prayer time should start with that every day. That you come to him and you're like, okay, God, Search me. Is there anything offensive? So I was driving to church. Uh, one week we were still in the school and on my way to the school, I was praying and, and this was kind of a rhythm. I was like, hey God, you know, I'm ready to get my preach on. And so just, man, if there's any offensive way in me, just reveal, reveal it. I'm driving along. I had my eyes open. I wasn't doing that. But uh, I, I, I'm driving along, and, 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 and God said, we well, did lie to Yvonne a couple days ago. And I'm like, and he took me back to the Thursday night before this Sunday. We were watching something on TV. It was raining outside. Our, our, our little um, beagle, Sadie, God rest her soul. Um, she, uh, she needed to go outside, scratched on the door. I went and opened the door and I'm watching the TV the whole time. I open the door, she goes out. She scratches on the door, I open the door, she comes in and I go back over and I plop down on the couch and she said, hey, did you wipe her feet? And I'm like, yeah. And uh, she said, really? I said, yeah, yeah, I wiped her feet. Are you, are you sure? And I looked at her just kind of defiantly and said, yes, I wiped her feet. I didn't wipe her feet. And, uh, and so for the next five or 10 minutes, I'm sitting staring at the TV screen, asking myself the question, why did I lie about that? That's so dumb. But she seemed to be satisfied with the answer and we just kind of moved on. So I'm driving to church and God said, hey, you did lie to your wife. Yeah, God, I'm so sorry I did that. And he goes, cool, call her. I mean, she's probably still asleep. I'll see her at church in a few He's like, call her. She might be in the shower by now. I'm not, it, call her. And I really 
was feeling like, I do not want to call her for this. And, and God very clearly said, you're not preaching until you call her. Then I'm like, well, what are you going to do? <laughs> okay, I'm in. So I called her and she answered the phone. <sighs> Couldn't just leave a message. I'm like, hey, I was just praying. And uh, God just reminded me that I lied to you the other night. She goes, about what? I said, because I didn't wipe Sadie's feet. She said, I know. <laughs> I said, well, I knew you knew, and I don't even know why I, went, I didn't tell you the truth. So dumb. But I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And her response was shocking. I don't know why, but it was. She said, Greg, I feel so safe right now because God loves you enough to not let you let a little thing like that get in the way. And you were obedient and you said, yes, I love you. I'll see you at church. So we're prone to let the little things go, but it's the little things that become the big things that begin to jade our view of this all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful God. And so I ask you at the beginning of our time together to ask yourself the question, how big is your God? How big is your God? Well, I promise you this, the more time you spend in the secret place, the bigger he gets. The more time you spend focusing on your relationship with him, what happens is your, your view of his presence grows. The recognition of your sin and the need for confession grows. Why? Because you want to live the everlasting way.